so far in the book of Acts, things have been going well. They've been going very well. So if you've been around since the start of September, you'll remember the story that we've seen. In Acts, we read what Jesus continues to do and to say. In Luke, his former book, it was all that he began to do and teach. So by implication, this is what Jesus continues to do and to teach. But in chapter 1, we read that he ascends to the Father. So how on earth is Jesus going to continue his ministry when he's not here? How does that work? And the answer that we've seen is through his people, through his spirit-empowered people. Because when Jesus ascends, he then pours out his spirit on his people, the promised spirit that the people have been waiting for to equip them and enable them. And we know the battle plan as well. Do you remember in 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as the pages have flicked on, someone has been there with a clicker. They've been counting people. Seeing the spread of the kingdom, God's word is true, God's spirit is powerful. So why should we be surprised for the kinds of numbers we've read of? You can plot it on a graph. So 1 verse 15. Do you remember in those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Then in 2 verse 41, Peter's sermon after Pentecost, those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Then in 2 verse 47, this kind of glimpse of the perfect church, they relate to each other well. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. By our passage this week, 4 verse 4, many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Somebody is there with a job, counting. Numbers matter. And it's been going well as well. 2 verse 47... The Christian community enjoyed the favour of all the people. It's been good. Until now. Because in chapter 4 and onwards, everything changes. Now maybe you were expecting things to get harder. Imagine you're the, it's your first time reading Acts. Maybe you're a natural pessimist can't go on for that long, can it? Being so good, something is going to go wrong, something's bound to break. This is just the honeymoon stage. Perhaps you're someone who judges their experience then by how we're doing now, the stress and the difficulty of being a Christian. The lack of fruit, perhaps. Maybe we can, we just can't associate with the kind of growth we've been reading of in Acts with us and how we find things. Or maybe you knew it was coming because you remember Judas. Do you remember Judas? It's extraordinary in chapter 1. Why would Luke start with Judas? It had been going really nicely. And then he has to mention his name. Judas put a temporary dampener on things. It's striking. Judas, who had betrayed Jesus to the cross. And in the there and then, you can imagine the utter nightmare they must have gone through. The disciples, they had left everything for Jesus. They had given it all up. He had promised that he was the one. He was God's king. He was going to come and put a broken world back together. He was going to come and deal with sin. He was going to bring in the kingdom. 
And on the Friday, he enters Jerusalem on a donkey and people are cheering. The crowds are cheering. But then by next week, he was dead on a cross with the crowds cheering. At first glance, it seems Judas was the problem. But as Luke told the story of Judas from chapter 1, what do we see? Do you remember? We saw there were two things being held together that we struggle to get right in our minds. That, that we are responsible. What we do matters. But that God is sovereign. God is in charge. So in the account of Judas, was he culpable for his sin? Yeah. Was it part of God's plan? Yeah. Can we blame God for the sin? No. Judas did what he chose to do. And you've got these two things which we just struggle to get together in our minds that Luke and other Bible writers just happily put next to each other. God is sovereign, He is in charge, and yet we are responsible. So as we face the opposition in Acts chapter 4, the the start of the future when things go sour, let's be mindful that in the midst of the bleakness, maybe God's at work. Maybe God is still growing his kingdom. Still bringing about his purposes. And as we face opposition, perhaps increasingly in our day, perhaps as life gets increasingly hard being a Christian in the the months, the years to come. Well, bear in mind that God might be at work. Things might look bleak. But perhaps he's still in control. Perhaps he's still sovereign, working out his purposes. What I want to do in Acts chapter 4, it's a long passage, thank you Jonathan for reading it. I want to basically retell quite briefly and quickly Uh, the broad overview of the first half from 1 to 22 and then to slow down a bit and look particularly at the believer's prayer from 23 through to 31. So we'll be fairly brief in 1 to 22 and then we'll put the brakes on in the second half. And it's striking, we need to remember what Daniel told us last week if you were here. Do you remember what time is it? Because when we know what time it is, then we know the kind of things we ought to expect. And one of the big things from last time that Daniel said from chapter 3 was that this is the age the prophets had looked forward to of raising up. Do you remember that? This is the age of resurrection. So from last time, verse 13 and 14 and 15, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed... And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. And because this is the age of raising up, then we shouldn't be surprised if if a, a lame beggar from last week stands on his feet and walks and dances and sings. We shouldn't be surprised that people are resurrected, brought new life. 
Because it's striking why the religious police in chapter 4 come and accost them. So verses 1 and 2, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. This isn't just an age of, of miracles, of people being raised up. This is the time when people teach of the resurrection, an age where Jesus can get you through death. That's what the religious police don't like. That's why they're accosted. They come and lock them up. It seems a mix of what they were teaching, but as well we'll see the stuff they've been doing, this healing, this guy who's been over 40 years unable to walk. And they haul them before the leaders. It looks like it's gone wrong, but, verse 4, many believed. Click, 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 5,000 people. And three things then, just to sort of broadly oversee these verses. The first one, there's an undenied miracle. The the event, the healing, the miracle is never in doubt. So verse 7, by what power or what name did you do this? Well, verse 16, what are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign, and we can't deny it. It's extraordinary, isn't it? We miss it because the argument in our day goes, well, miracles don't happen, therefore this couldn't have happened. That's what the people we rub shoulders with struggle with. But isn't it striking? The problem in their day wasn't, did it happen? It was, how did it happen? The event is never in doubt. The cause is in doubt. Secondly, notice there is power in Jesus' name. So in verse 7 they ask a question. And they say, by what power or what name did you do this? Verse 10, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is the age of raising up, of resurrection. And the name of Jesus is vital because he is the one who has been raised. He is the one who can get you through death. And thirdly, there's an attempt at silence in these verses. So we've said everyone's seen him. What do you do if everybody has seen this guy who was unable to walk and now walks. They, they can't deny it, so they've got to cover it up. That has to be the tactic. So look at 17 to 20. To stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. There's an attempt to silence this truth. To silence them from their speaking. But notice, and this is really striking, and I'm slightly frustrated that we're not spending more time in this first half. I need to do more thinking on this. But there's this appeal to freedom for Peter. So what does Peter say? He says, you be the judges... That is 
he's appealing to freedom of conscience. What do you think we should do? We should have freedom to do as we see fit. There's a freedom to religion. He says, what's right in God's eyes? To listen to you or God? There's a freedom of speech as well. We cannot help speaking. Now, of course, he doesn't expect the religious leaders to necessarily uphold those freedoms. He doesn't claim that they're an unalienable right. And they will disobey the state if needed. But as we begin to sort of perhaps rethink our relationship with the state, it's an extraordinary model to think those things through, perhaps particularly especially as the state becomes less supportive of Christians. Peter appeals to freedom. And so off they go. I'm going to read again from 23 to 31 just to get those verses back into our minds and then we'll ask a number of questions of them and think a bit about what it means for us in our culture, in our context. So verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So first question to ask, what do they do? What do these believers do? Notice that rather than retreat and hide, the Christians respond in prayer for courage. Isn't that striking? It might have been the temptation to say, well, that was a bit too close for comfort. That was a lucky escape. Let's, let's just back off and, and rethink our strategy a bit. Maybe just quieten things down. Be a little bit less vocal. Isn't that how we might react? Let's be wise in this situation. Let's just slow things down a bit. But they know they go and pray, and they pray for more boldness. They pray that they would keep on talking, that they would keep opening their mouths. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. In a global context, we have it easy here. We're pretty much able to open our mouths. But even just in ten years of ministry, for me, from a limited perspective, I think things have got harder. I think it's more difficult, whether it be talk of the existence of God, exclusivity of Christ, biblical sexual ethics, the reality of heaven and hell. In the midst of the, the rising temperature, 
Let's pray for boldness. Here's a prayer for us to remember. Truths for us to cling to. And what truths? Well, what do they remember? They remember that God is sovereign and in charge. So verse 24, God made the, he made the world. He's a big God. This has not surprised him. Verse 25 and 26, a thousand years before, King David had written Psalm 2. Psalm 2, the impudence of the nations, uniting, conspiring together against God, against his king. But you see, David's words were not just true for his situation. They were true a millennia later for the early church. David's words were prophetic. Herod and Pontius Pilate are now those who conspire together, collaborating against God and against his king, against his people. And just as in David's day, that collaboration was doomed. So in this day, it is doomed too. It might look out of control. It might look like God is on to plan B or plan C, that we've departed from the scripts. Things aren't going quite so swimmingly. But God is still in control. Because how does Psalm 2 end? What's the end of Psalm 2? It ends with God's victorious king judging those who are conspiring against him. He wins. So you see why they quote Psalm 2. Because they know that God is in charge. And so that is then fuel for their prayers. That is why there's a prayer for boldness. And that's what they want, isn't it? Rather than retreating, rather than quietening down, they want to be transformed. They want to be bolder. They want to be noisier. Isn't that a prayer for us in our day? Problem is, we've grown cynical and jaded. And we know what we're like. We know our timidity. We know the battle to open our mouths to speak of Christ. It's a bit like the pictures you get, um, the before and after pictures you get in advertising. I used to work in marketing many moons ago. And whatever category it is, you get a before picture and an after picture. The before picture is wrinkly and old and unclean and ugly. And the after picture is smooth and young and pristine and beautiful. Something transforms them. It's this toothpaste that you, you never knew you needed. This skin cream, it's clothes, whatever it might be. Something will transform you. Something will change you. Or it's the sort of seven steps to the perfect life. If you just do this, 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 this and this, then you'll be okay. Then you will have a life of victory. The life you've always dreamt of. But we're cynical. Because we know how the marketers work. And we know what you can do with Photoshop. And we've tried it and we don't believe it. Can anything change us? God can change us. If we're to move from being timid and unbelieving, we need him. He can do it. So you see how it ends in verse 31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. 
Actually, it ends as the chapter began, because verse 8, when Peter kicks off his sermon, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He says to them, rulers and elders of the people. That was the promise at the start of Acts. God would come and live among his people. Emmanuel, God with us. He would come and equip and fill and empower us to speak. And again and again as you read through the words of Acts, you see they are filled by the Holy Spirit. And I think each and every time that is accompanied by speaking. Something verbal happens. Mouths are opened. They are his witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. One writer says this of the early church, the whole show was very amateur. They did not employ professional experts, but the Spirit made them into effective communicators. He injected into them the courage, enthusiasm and eloquence they needed. So as you look ahead to next week, the kind of people you will rub shoulders with, the, the folk who are in your diary, the meetings, the lectures, the, whatever it might be. Don't you that kind of empowering by the Holy Spirit to open our mouths, give us the words to say, to give us courage and boldness? John Stott, in his little book, um, Our Guilty Silence, a book I found really helpful about a decade ago, just opens up some of the reasons that we, we struggle to speak, to take that step. Things that inhibit us. Shyness. Apathy. Fear. Fear of what they will think of us. Fear of losing friends. How do we deal with those things? If that's the before, if that's what we're like, then how do we get to the after? I take it by praying the kind of prayer they pray, knowing we serve a sovereign God, God who is in charge, and yet who uses people. One danger as we consider God's sovereignty is that we can use it as an excuse for silence. God's in control. I'll not bother. I don't need to speak, do I? Because he's going to bring about his plans and his purposes. And yet he uses people like us. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God boldly.